Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. We have Steve Kerr here today. I'm really excited to have him on. You know, he and I have actually been having a lot of conversations off screen over the last several months, including a really good phone call that we had recently. And so I was like, hey, you got to make sure you get on the show. And he said, hey, I finally can come on the show, which was really exciting for me because he has tons of a background and experience, knowledge, wisdom, the whole deal. So it's really exciting to have him on. Steve, welcome. Hey, John, welcome uh, to you. <laughs> it's been quite a while that, 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 that we've been talking about, get, about getting me on the show, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity. I look forward to speaking with you in the audience. Well, you definitely have a lot of background. We're going to talk about that today for sure. But let's start off real quick. I'm in uh, my winter gear here right now. It's snowing like crazy in St. Louis. You have a son in Cleveland. Apparently, there's a lot of snow up there, but you're in Florida, right? Yeah, it's 74 <laughs> degrees, and I am in Palm Beach County, Florida, and uh, it's hard to uh, uh, imagine what's going on elsewhere, although it's not really. I mean, I, 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 I did uh, eight years in Colorado. I'm from New York uh, City, New York State, so mm -hmm. uh, I understand what's going on. I spoke to my son yesterday. He's, uh, he's a doc up at uh, one of the university hospitals up there, and, uh, you know, he's, he's essential, and he's got to be there. Yeah, I mean, it. so I just interviewed, uh, had the opportunity to interview Andy John, who talked about emergency services still has to come in during inclement weather, right? Bad weather. How do you get in? How do you operate? And um, it shows that, you know, emergency management, we always focus on the public, and we're going to be talking a little bit about this today, but we focus so much on the public, and yet there's all these other actors, all these other personnel who have to be there, even when nobody else wants to be there. Now, I'm not going to lie, I'd like to be in 75-degree weather right now in Florida. But when it snows, it snows, and we can have fun with that, too. So let's talk about that. You mentioned New York. Can you give, a, just for a, a brief introduction for our audience, kind of your background, maybe starting with the 1993 um, a bombing in the World Trade Center? Sure. So uh, my career goes back to my days in EMS in New York City. I started in 1980 as an EMT, worked my way up the ranks, uh, to uh, d deputy chief, uh, I was um, I had a, a great opportunity to be a special operations officer and ultimately a commander of the special operations division in EMS, which is where my emergency management career starts. So that goes back to 1985. Uh, 1993, we're talking about the bombing of the World Trade Center, which is uh, not really spoken about much these days. People think about 9-11, but uh, in February, so we're coming up on the, the anniversary, we had mm -hmm. uh, a bombing in the world, at the World Trade Center in the, in the parking garage that resulted in uh, about 1,100 casualties and six deaths. And uh, I was um, a call to respond to the scene and be part of the uh, the incident command team there. The uh, the bombing in 93, so obviously EM, we all kind of study it. But uh, yeah, you're right. We all focus on 9-11. And it's always like this blip. Like 1993, they did this, they did basically a test, and it didn't really work. And they came back in 2001. Um, you know, 1,100 casualties, or 1,100 uh, injuries, rather. Um, that's quite a bit of a... A bigger incident than the blip on the radar that people try to make it sound right 
Yeah, it was. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of my jobs was mutual aid coordination. And uh, we were receiving EMS assets from the tri-state area and beyond. So I was I was um, uh, recording, staging and deploying EMS resources from Connecticut, New Jersey, I believe, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a, a mutual aid response. And fortunately, we had mutual aid plans that that uh, that just came to bear that day. Yeah. So you fast forward from this complex coordinated issue. Uh, everybody's responding. Um, you know what? Eight years later, 2011 hit. Or uh, sorry, 9/11 um, hit. 2011 hit. 9/11 hit. You're there as well. And then they stand up. Um, you know, NYC OEM, and you were part of that, right? I was. So New York City OEM was uh, created in 19. 96 uh, by a mayoral executive order. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to join the leadership team uh, at the time based on uh, my experience at uh, in the New York City Fire Department. At, at one point, what I didn't mention was that New York City EMS, New York City Fire Department merged and I and the EMS personnel continued with their rank and positions and I became a member of the fire department. And then I was assigned to OEM and served as deputy director for, uh, for the next almost, almost five years. Um, I Jeez. was, yeah, yeah. It, it was fascinating not only to do emergency management for New York city. I mean, we could spend the next 24 hours of talking war stories, but it was a fascinating to be part of an opportunity to build it out, um, yeah. structure it. And with some incredible talent that we had on the team that, uh, starting with the director, Jerry Hauer, mm. uh, who had a lot to do with bringing me in, um, and uh, many, uh, many other uh, colleagues at the executive level and, and on the teams. There are, so I've been to, I don't know, 80, 90% of the state OEMs um, over the course of how many years? And I would say there's three or four Office of Emergency Management, State Office of Emergency Management that really stand out. And NYC is one of them. I mean, it's not even the state one. It's just it is um, so well organized and designed. And I did, actually did an informational interview there maybe 12 years ago. I didn't get the job. So I should uh, should have called you up and should have known you. But basically, they wanted somebody with a master's degree. And they, they knew exactly what they wanted, how they were organized. And uh, I was like, okay, like it actually put me on a course of saying, if I want to work in a place like NYC OEM, then here are the kind of the things I need to do and hence informational interview. And uh, it shows uh, really the caliber of what you put together there. But you're the type of guy who uh, has had like a response experience and then gets called in to maybe help fix later on. And that's kind of EM anyways which is why you got called out to Colorado. But before we get into Colorado, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply Disaster Tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, 
repeated three-meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme Series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Okay, let's jump back in. All right, so we talked about NYCOEM. We talked about kind of how you've been, you've had this long history between emergency services and emergency management, and we're trying to figure this stuff out. And then the Waldo Canyon fire happens in Colorado. Now, everybody's thinking about Colorado right now because of the Boulder fire. So maybe you can provide some perspective there. But you went from, you know, city life essentially to Colorado life. Was the adjustment there? Did you find EM to be totally different? Um, talk, to, talk to us about your experience and, and kind of the after actions that you've gained through dealing with totally different communities. What were the similarities, differences? Well, I'll tell you a story. So when I, when I was going through the recruitment process for that job, uh, there were uh, a number of members of the Colorado Springs Utilities leadership team that were on the recruitment panel. And uh, before they made the selection, they flew me out and I met with uh, Tyler Allison, who has since become, he was my boss for a while and uh, he ended up as a corporate officer and has since retired. But um, he sat me down and he said, he said, I gotta ask you a question. He said, you're coming from New York City. He said, Colorado Springs is a sleepy little town. Nothing ever happens here. Are you going to be bored? And I, I told him about my experience, and I said I have done pretty much just about any type of incident you could manage, maybe minus a volcano. And uh, and and I was uh, and I was brought brought on the team. And what's what what came to bear was that that was not true at all. Uh, just two weeks after I started, we had a catastrophic flood event. Uh, that resulted in a presidential major disaster declaration for the for the most of the entire most of the state, certainly mm-hmm. along the front range, including Boulder, uh, where they lost a gas infrastructure and we provided mutual aid. So that was my first experience there. Um, and then through any number of incidents that you can imagine in a town serving uh, in a town. Well, Colorado Springs is the second largest city in, in, in Colorado, mm. population of about 500,000. So wildfires. Um, power plant fires, um, mm-hmm. major wastewater leaks. Whoever thought a wastewater emergency would be sexy, but when you apply emergency <laughs> management principles to it, guess yeah. what? It works. So, yeah. Interesting. I, I still probably wouldn't use the word sexy, but <laughs> maybe dramatic. <laughs> the uh, wastewater. You know, I, I was, um, it was really interesting. We were talking about, a catastrophic disaster with some, just some of my friends and talking talking about how uh, the Romans figuring out wastewater and, and the importance of getting wastewater out of there. Um, that is one of the luxuries of, you know, uh, the, the world we live in right now is not dealing with that. But once you have to deal with that impact, you realize like how awful it is to have to deal with that. Um, 
and hopefully other communities around the world as as emergency management principles grow uh, internationally we can start helping some of those communities that don't um, uh, have that luxury unfortunately so really interesting to think about well you know wastewater is being used as part of covid response pretty much across the united states whether mm-hmm. they look for and find uh whether omicron or delta or whatever uh, variant mm. might be present in, in the in the product, and that has been used to determine pandemic status since uh, the beginning almost. Um, uh, keep on wanting to make puns about this, but I'm going to try to hold back off the dad puns here for a second. Uh, so, okay, you're you're dealing with now all of a sudden you're told that it's not going to be very busy. It is very busy. I think that's probably what's happened a lot during COVID for especially a lot of county level emergency managers or especially campus level emergency managers. I know a guy who got hired two years ago at a college campus to be their EM director. And instead of reviewing the plans and updating and start coordinating it with everybody, COVID hit. So his whole job went to COVID. So uh, let's talk about that, like your expectation versus reality. Could you give advice to the field, especially those who are maybe either getting to the field or they're transitioning to other places? How did you adjust to a tempo maybe that you weren't even expecting? I wasn't expecting it, but coming out, I, I guess coming out of New York and, and coming out of field response when I was in the fire department and uh, coming out of uh, New York City OEM, where we, were, we had a field response component and certainly a planning uh, mitigation and, and you know, operational component for the EOC and stuff, it up tempo was pretty high. So I think for me, the adjustment wasn't, wasn't, wasn't very difficult. But if we think about uh, people entering the business, I think it's important to realize that your day can go south pretty quick at a moment's notice. Uh, and uh, it's, it's the sudden onset events that really throw you for a loop. So, you know, you know, a hurricane's coming if you're a coastal emergency manager, pretty much when a when we see it emerging off the coast of Africa, for the most part, and you could track it for two weeks, tornado, mm-hmm. even a tornado event, you're getting severe weather warnings from the severe storm prediction center, local national weather service offices, you know, it's coming, but a sudden onset event, like an explosion fire in a power plant or um, mm. a construction accident with, with, with injuries, stuff like that just, just kind of throws you for the loop. So it's important to be prepared for the emotional aspect of that because people are going to turn to you, the emergency manager, for that steady hand. And, mm. uh, but down the line, you need to take care of your own emotional health as well. There was a, um, I mean, talk about great advice. I think about how, uh, what was it, Waco, the, 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 uh, the um, the plant that blew up, uh, fertilizer plant. I think it was Waco. Um, how I studied that extensively as uh, a guy who does data and analytics and looking at risk, because they were they were they were claiming that through the satellite imagery that the town was fine, but what happened when when the explosion happened, it basically broke all the roofs. So the roofs went up and landed back on their roofs, and so from an aerial image you know, uh, we call that, um, uh, you know, I actually forget the term, my bad, but basically looking straight down, you you can't look at it. You'd have to look at it from an an oblique side. You'd have to look at it at at an angle. And um, that's when the the drive-bys really started uh, coming into play with uh, the preliminary damage assessments. 
So it just shows you that like even the things that you've done in the past, satellite and or you know the Cessnas flying over the air that might not be able to get you what you want. You, you have to look at it from the the perspective of the disaster and uh, you know ground reports essentially. So really just trying to switch things up and um, you know trying to go with the flow, right? So I, I think that's what kind of what you're alluding to there is just you kind of have to take it as it comes in and take care of your mental emotional health so that you can last longer, right? You know, I think, well, yes, absolutely. Uh, it is absolutely critical for the emergency manager to be seen as that as that beacon of light during the crisis. But it's also critical that other people recognize that people in, in, in command positions, emergency management positions, uh, leadership positions uh, need to be taken care of uh, as well. Uh, one, one thing that, that that seemed to work for me is to just war game things out in my head uh, over time oh. as I'd be driving around wherever and whatever job I've had. So I lived in New York City, I lived in uh, South Brooklyn under the uh, approach to uh, JFK. So you war game, well, what if something went down over there and, uh, and how would we react to it? Well, guess what? I've been to two commercial aviation accidents at LaGuardia and some of the thinking in my head was able to you know to be to be applied there, and mm-hmm. then we had TWA eight hundred, which was not in our jurisdiction, but again we supported that. So that's that's just an example. We I had the opportunity to hear from um, PIOs about uh, the Reno um, Reno disaster, where uh, it was an air show and a, a plane lost control, and the pilot um, essentially sacrificed himself he he dove down as fast as he could so that he wouldn't hit the entire crowd but the planes to still hit right in front of the crowd and there was a lot of casualties right right in the front and um the emergency manager there was like or the pio was like i was not expecting a to deal with a plane crash today and all the different things of the multiple hats that he was wearing as a, a pio and as an emergency manager um which we're going to be talking about later on a couple episodes from now about uh, public information officers and what you can do as an emergency manager dealing with those or working with them, those counterparts. But it, it shows that, you know, there's there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of different areas that we have to hit in here um, as EMs and there's counterparts, right? But when you're talking about wargaming, what you're really talking about is... Um, like in an emer- like when you're in a response scenario, all those war games of thinking about what you would have done helps you determine what you will do. And I've seen t- far too many emergency managers focus so much on the immediate. Pr- I mean, you have the disaster right in front of you, so it's hard to start thinking four, five, six steps steps ahead of the consequence to those actions. Um, and, and really, what the critical infrastructure, the people, all those things to get back online and how they're going to come back online. So I, I think there's a big component that we're missing here of understanding future actions or strategic actions in emergency management. As a guy who's done that naturally, how would you help uh, other people instill that? Would you say like the war game or like once you're in a response, how do you get out from having to do all the immediate stuff to try to think ahead a little bit? What do you need to do to do that? So a couple things. Not every, um, not everything is ICS. And not every incident uh, takes ICS to manage it. Um, I was mm. recently part of a, a, a team that issued a, 
an academic paper, Emergency Management is a Complex Adaptive System. And while we talk about ICS, and I, I want to bring that down to uh, a more granular level, the, I learned early in my emergency management career that process is important, but getting it done is more important. And uh, bypassing, uh, circumventing, navigating, and going to the source to get something done, especially on behalf of people that are in need, is absolutely, uh, is absolutely critical. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, it's important to understand, get that into the process, but let's get it done first. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's fun to talk to different people of different perspectives. I talked to an emergency planner, you know, the GOAT, Rodney, and he says process is more important than um, product. I talked to somebody who, is, who has a background in, for, as a first responder, and they say, hey, it's all about getting the job done. And I talked to Tim Britt, uh, who's been on the show, and he said, hey, you f if you fail, you fail at tactics. He was kind of quoting uh, Brock Long. He's just like, hey, you got to get the job done. And so it's, it's really fun to like listen to the different perspectives. Uh, I like to be I don't know, apolitical in this space. I like to say, hey, process is just as important as product or, or process is just as important as outcome. If you don't have the outcome, then what was the point of the process? But your process really should be defining all the different people, all the different components of a certain disaster type that you need to include. And I agree 100%. Sometimes emergency managers get so focused on the process that they don't realize that not every disaster requires those things. Not every disaster is ICS. Um, I, had a, I had a professor in my master's degree, um, and I loved that program, but he hated ICS. Now, I'm a big fan of ICS and, 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 and the purpose of ICS, but it does show that we have to start thinking outside the box a little bit. Yes, standardizations are real. Uh, but we need to understand when the rule should apply and what rule should apply. So, so I, let me come back to your question because yeah. I, I do like ICS and there's a place for ICS Absolutely. and there's a place for process. But uh, to, to answer your, your initial question, ICS does not generally allow you to, to do that strategic thinking for what's going on later on. You do an Good IEP, point. you do an IEP for the next operational period, and that's more tactical that's more tactically oriented. So as part of the ICS process, or let's just say as part of the response process, um, if ICS is in place, put together a future uh, situations group, which I had on my ICS chart, my last job, which mm -hmm. did the, the forward thinking that was way beyond the next operational period and start to what if, what, mm -hmm. what if, what if, what if, you know, five what ifs, what if this happens, what if that happens? And then start thinking out um, two, three days, seven days. Uh, you know, we did that when we had a power plant fire in Colorado Springs. We did a, we started to what if, what, how are we going to get this power plant back online after structure fire? And uh, it was quite a process. But mm. we started during the response phase. So the engineering folks and the operational folks were able to start getting their contractors together. And well, your fire department was still there. And we start, start thinking about uh, how we're going to generate electricity. The, uh, the funny thing about uh, like future planning, um, I saw it firsthand probably really for the first time at, uh, at FEMA. Uh, I, I won't say which disaster is that, but the, the core group that were involved it was uh, definitely a learning curve, both for them and for us, because they would they would play the what if game, but their what ifs were so far and beyond like what the data was saying. They weren't including data 
they weren't including analytics in like in their what ifs. And what you're saying is you were including engineers, you were including like the recovery process, you were talking about the actual steps that were going to happen down the road and how to get there. An IEP um, for for those who really haven't worked at like the either the federal or the state level, really what it is is just an agreement of this is what the state's going to do, this is what the feds are going to do, and that's how it works at uh, with with FEMA. Um, but you're right, like it doesn't really cover like hey, what are we doing in the future here, and what are actions going to cause down in the future? So uh, excellent points again, like all the way around, hundred percent shows that you really do have this wealth of knowledge. I want to wrap up the show here by talking about like the history of EM. You and I had this excellent conversation offline, and I almost wish I was able to record it because we were talking about the history of EM and the direction of where it's going. Could you, for our audience' sake, you know, I, they've heard my opinion plenty of times, right? What is your opinion? Like, when were the major shifts happening in EM? Is COVID? I mean, we all kind of think it's a shift, but but if we're talking about the the next step here for our trying to there's conversations about the next steps of em what is your outlook i don't think COVID is a shift i think we need a shift but let's go mm. back to interesting to major shifts i uh, wish no just talk about that real fast that's really fascinating why yeah, don't you think COVID I, is a shift i think uh i think emergency management has taken uh back seat to elected officials which is a difficult thing to say because emergency managers, at least at the community and government level, report to elected officials mm. and to public health. Whereas I believe if emergency management took had more of a lead role in the overall response at the federal level, certainly at the state and local level, with public health as part of the, the process, whether it's ICS or not, I think there would have been um, more cohesion, mm. more synchronicity more collaboration. Um, but the issues are really much bigger than that when you factor in the the, the messaging and the fails of, of leadership throughout the whole, whole pandemic. Okay, so I agree with you 100% there. This is why I'm, I'm hoping it's a shift because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's the, the whole backseat thing has been driving me nuts. The, the fewer two or three locations, Vermont, Ohio... I think there's one other one. You saw the governor get up there and he was just like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to hand it over to what I think is the expert. And uh, they handed it over to public health. And that was like the part where I like died a little bit inside because public health looks at long-term trends. It doesn't do response. And so the the places that have integrated better, um, Montgomery County Emergency Manager, the Director of Emergency Management was on our podcast a year ago talking about that of... If you want to do better messaging, you want to do better coordination, you want to end your disaster, you involve the emergency manager. And when the emergency manager isn't making those calls or are able to provide that coordination piece, it's a fail. I, every politician in my book during the COVID, and, I, and I'm so glad I'm not in the federal government, I can say this now, ha- has failed. Like the messaging has just been awful. And like, I think we could have been out of this a long time ago if the messaging was much better. Um, but as soon as, a, as soon as a disaster becomes political, any disaster, it's catastrophic. It doesn't matter what the disaster type is. So, but, good but call that out. Didn't start, that didn't start until 2005. Before mm. Katrina, emergency managers pretty much uh, had the flexibility, uh, at, at least in my experience, 
to get stuff done. Um, but people, elected officials then started to realize that they had these emergency managers that work for them. And that's where I believe elected officials, well, I mean, just look what happened to emergency management between two, 2001 and Katrina, where it was sort of, sort of diluted, FEMA was sort of disbanded, and then it was the EPNR directorate and, and DHS, and then recreated as FEMA. And then, you know, it took the, the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act to put emergency management back on the uh, back on the radar, and, mm-hmm. and I think strong, strong, effective leaders started growing emergency management again. But the the pandemic has put a little bit of a, a damper on on who we are and what we do. One, one more point, if I may, mm-hmm. this messaging that you speak about, um, and let's just take all this negative messaging going on about masks and vaccines and the constant change in messages, it's going to hurt emergency management for years to come. We already have problems messaging emergencies and giving warnings to communities. Let's say a coastal evacuation 72 hours in advance, a cat four storm is coming, the sun is mm. shining, it's vacation season, people aren't leaving. Now, now you add on top of that, you got, you can't tell me what to do. You're ruining my liberties. Fake news. There is no hurricane. That kind of thing. Our job just got a little harder. Well, that's a that's a good that's a good call out. You know what? Honestly, though, I, I think it's an opportunity for us to say uh, to the field to to start defining what we do, what we don't do. Um, I had this episode about there's no such thing as the boy who cry, cries wolf in emergency management. Because if the storm shifts, it shifts and everybody wins. Like the, the, the worst thing that happens is somebody's inconvenienced. And that's what's been driving me most uh, crazy about COVID is like you want the science to update. You want people to find out better answers. And in the moment, um, I, I, watched this, um, I watched this clip actually. Um, it was really interesting. He said, if you say it's 4 p.m. and it's 2 p.m., you're wrong. If you say it's 4 p.m. and it's 3 p.m., you're wrong. But if you say it's 4 p.m. and it's finally 4 p.m., you're like, oh, I was always right. No, you were still wrong at 2 and 3 p.m. And that's what's been uh, most aggravating is people, as things update, people who are not experts, as they've been providing input, um, has uh, impacted that. Now, I'm more hopeful. I'm, I'm hoping that the conversations with the politicians and the public health and, and all the other people who've been involved in these decision makings as they've put us on the sidelines said, hey, I want to be able to go to them and say, you kind of screwed up, but you screwed up because you didn't really know what you're doing. I do this for my career. I do this for a living. Let me help you out. Let me make this better. And um, I, I think as we we push very hard to establish ourselves as professionals that somebody who can fix problems and not just another seat at the table, then I, I do think that, you know, there could be a shift, but we all as emergency managers have to, to step out of our shell a little bit and say, no, no, I need to be at the head of this table. I can't just be another seat at this table. And um, I, I think that's kind of the, the message what we're going with today. Again, more hopeful. I hope, uh, I hope uh, our our risk management, our analytics are slightly different there. But Steve, if you're going to give one final message to the audience, if you wanted to talk to 20,000 emergency managers today, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Don't fail to communicate. We see, I believe we have a real ongoing 
uh, problem in, in emergency communications as evidenced by delayed messaging during wildfires, during other emergencies or lack of messaging. We have uh, dysfunctional notification systems, fragmented notification systems. What's iPause? Do you have to subscribe to your community system? All that stuff needs to be needs to be brought together. But call an audible, get it, make a decision. If you need to go to go to your elected leaders, get it done early. Get the get the authority to, to issue that warning. You know, communicate, communicate, communicate. I have made people insane with that repeated message that have worked for me over the years. Is, um, you know, shared situational awareness. Talk to your partners uh, and communicate with your with your constituency, whether it's a workforce in an organization or community. Uh, get the message out. Excellent, excellent call out. Mic drop moment. We're going to call with that. Everybody, if you liked this episode, if you liked hearing from Steve Kerr, which you should have. I'm going to do my shameless plug every time. Give us that five-star rating and subscribe. Give us a comment on social media. Let us know what you would do to help perpetuate the field of emergency management. If you agree with Steve and I about some of the history and, and where it's going and you have ideas to help us improve as a field, we all want to hear about it. We want to coordinate, communicate with us as Steve just called out, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.